Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to, to gather with you to worship our Lord and Shepherd, Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us this morning, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Kelton. I also have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here of Stafford Baptist Church. Please, if you would, hang around after our service so we can have a, a chance to get to know you. Though for now, if you would, please grab your Bibles and open with me to the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to use one of the Bibles provided for you there in the pew, one of those black Bibles, and you can find Matthew 18 on page 823 on that Bible there. We've been steadily studying through Matthew's account of the, the life, the teaching, the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus, and so far we have come far enough to know that Jesus' death is imminent. And he is, in this gospel, preparing his disciples, teaching them in light of his coming departure about life in the kingdom of heaven. And in our passage this morning, in Matthew 18, Jesus directly addresses what his disciples are to do about sin. So our passage, Matthew 18, 1 through 20, what to do about sin. I don't know what you were hoping we would consider this morning, but this is an important question. What to do about sin? In fact, I might suggest that it is the fundamental question. Sin is radical and pervasive. All people are sinners and all problems are rooted in sin. A world without sin is a world without problems. If that's not enough, Jesus will teach us that the way that we deal with sin will determine whether, in his own words, we enter life or are thrown into an eternal fire. How about that? A topic this morning that addresses the cause of all our problems and determines our fate for eternity. Could there be a more important question? Friends, you have great need this morning with me to consider this question, what to do about sin. Jesus will teach us to beware the dangers of sin in ourselves and in others. Before I read, I will lead us in a prayer of illumination. So please pray with me for our hearing and for the proclamation of God's word. Father, we sing in thought, word, and deed. We have failed you, our King. We deeply need a Savior. So this morning, as we come to your word, we pray that you would reveal to us not only our sin in thought, word, and deed, but reveal to us, Lord, our Savior. Lord, the Savior that came when we were straying like sheep's, sheep, that we might return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Lord, not because we deserve, but because he is good in love. Lord, it is this we pray in his name. Amen. Read with me Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be thrown into the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The word of the Lord. Well, you might have noticed as we read this entire section, all these 20 verses that we've read, is response to that question raised in verse 1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And and Jesus does answer that question directly in verse 4. But of the 18 verses that make up his answer, 17 aren't about who is the greatest. He answers a more fundamental question. The question maybe the disciples should have been asking. So the main idea of these verses, beware the dangers of sin in yourself and in others. Our main idea this morning, beware the dangers of sin in yourself and in others. The primary topic Jesus addresses is not who is great, but how to deal with sin. And in fact, I think the self-concern that the disciples' question exposes needs to be addressed. That sin is a danger to themselves and to others, our entire community. Beware the dangers of sin in yourself and And in others. Answering that question, what to do about sin, we're going to have two sections this morning. First, our own sin, and second, other sin. You might have noticed as we read that Jesus transitions from talking about 
how to deal with sin in our own life to how to help others deal with sin. In each of our two sections, we'll have three subpoints. So our outline this morning, brothers and sisters, before we start, so you know where we're heading, first, what to do about our own sin. And three subpoints, A, repent, B, recognize risk, C, remove. And our second point, what to do about the sins of others, A, rescue, B, restore, C, remove. Again, two sections, what to do about our own sin, Repent, recognize, risk, remove, and what to do about the sins of others, rescue, restore, remove. We'll come back to those again, so in case you forgot those or forget them, we'll review. But let's start at the top. The first question, what to do about our own sin? What to do about our own sin? Our chapter continues directly and closely to what we studied last week. Jesus has returned to Capernaum continuing to prepare his disciples for what he expects to be his imminent departure. Though there are crowds present, you'll notice that the whole chapter is addressed to his disciples and the questions that they ask. And this first question from his disciples, as they consider the future, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Maybe this question was inspired by the absence of, of three of them, they got called up to the mountain while the nine were left behind. So they're wondering, who is the greatest? Well, whatever inspired the discussion, the 12 are wondering, who is the greatest? They want to know the, the pecking order in God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, what they ask about is, is the manifest reign of God among men. And the disciples had, had certain expectations about when that would come and what that might look like. But, but Jesus is not going to address that directly. Yes, he, he tells us that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's reign is coming among his people. But first, Jesus answers for us a more fundamental question. How do we enter his kingdom in the first place? So our first subpoint: what to do about our own sin, repent. What to do about our own sin, repent. That in verses 1 through 4. You'll see in verse 2, in answer to their question, Jesus calls a child from the crowd to himself. He's going to teach them using an object lesson. So he begins by pointing to the child and teaching in verse 3. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So before even considering who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, we must consider who is even in the kingdom of heaven. And the way to get in, the way to be submitted to the reign of God in his kingdom is to turn, he says, to turn and become like a child. Well, you wonder how, how might they become like children? Is it they must become playful? Or must be wide-eyed in excitement. Now Jesus calls on them to become like children in their humility and dependence. That's certainly, you can see the emphasis there in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like a child. His point is that we must be humble. To be a young child is to be completely dependent on others. Our four-week-old is an obvious example, literally unable to do anything on her own. 
That doesn't change much as the years go on. Jesus here is not talking about the kind of humility that says, I'm going to choose to be humble. I have, I have a choice to be proud, but I'm going to choose to be humble. Children don't choose to be de- dependent. Our infant Emery isn't making a conscious choice to be dependent, as noble as we might think that is. This humility that he is speaking of comes from the recognition that you have no other choice. That you have no reason to be arrogant, no choice but to be humble, to recognize who you are in light of who God is. It is to recognize that in fact you are truly and completely depending on God the Father, like a newborn infant. Dependent on God for life, first and foremost, but for salvation and for everything as well. This kind of of turning and becoming like a child, this kind of recognition of our true state before God is not natural to us. Pride or, or independence from others and from God is natural to us because we are sinners. Ever since Adam and Eve's first choice to rebel against God, all their descendants Though are born physically dependent on our parents, are born spiritually proud, joining them in their rebellion against God. That's why Jesus says here that you must turn. You must turn and become like children. He assumes that this requires a radical change in direction. In other words, Jesus is talking about repentance. To repent is is more than just a simple recognition that what you're doing is wrong, though it certainly includes that. The the word repent means to make an about face, to radically change one's thinking. Jesus means that in order to enter, to even be in the kingdom of heaven before we even consider the greatest, we must be converted You might think of conversion is, for example, maybe to go from checking Christian on a survey to checking none or vice versa. That's how our world thinks about conversion. But Jesus here means something far more radical. He is talking about getting a new nature, that we must be born again. Because frankly, anybody can change the box they tick on the survey about their religious opinion. But only those who have been born again by the Spirit have turned and become like children, have a a new nature in recognition of their dependence on God, something we are not born with. We need to be born again with it. That's the conversion that, that counts. That's the, the true turning and becoming like something that we were not born with, that Jesus means. Something like a child. It's as Jesus teaches Nicodemus in John 3, 3, where Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The truth is, the disciples' question to Jesus here is rooted in pride. They are not demonstrating the humility of having been turned and becoming like children. 
It is rooted, frankly, in self-concern, about jockeying for position over against others. It's rooted, in other words, in sin. Jesus does give an answer to their question in verse 4. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, is the one who is most humble, like a child. As he will say in Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. The greatest among you shall be your servant. So the first thing Jesus calls us to do about sin here is to repent. It is to recognize that we by nature are prone to self-concern. To acknowledge that is wrong and an offense against the righteousness and goodness of God and to turn away from it. And this is possible, only possible by the gracious gift of God. We can only see and enter if we have been born again from above. And as Martin Luther so well put it in the oft-quoted first of his 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is the first mark of our posture toward sin, but it is the enduring mark of our posture toward sin. A life-encompassing posture to turn away daily from our old nature and become more and more childlike even as we grow older. But our concern should not only be to repent of sin in our own life. Jesus goes on to teach us how to deal with our own sin. It is to take responsibility to not lead others to sin either. So our second sub-point, what to do about our own sin? Recognize risk. Recognize risk. This is in verses 5 through 7. Jesus continues to show how our posture toward our sin might, might also, must also take into account what effect it has on others. We must recognize the risk of our sin. And now from, from verse, five on, verse 5 on, he is not using child or little one in a literal sense. Here in verse 5 and 6 and in 10, he's talking about children and little ones as, as Christians, as a descri- description of a true disciple, one who has been truly humbled by being born again. So he says in verse 5, to receive a Christian, one such child, is to receive Jesus himself. It's as he taught his disciples in Matthew ten forty, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Jesus is so identified with his people that to receive one of his little ones, his his believers, is to receive him. We love him by loving his people. But he goes on immediately in verse 6. But to say there is an equal and opposite danger to abuse his people, callously causing them to sin. And that too shows our treatment of God. The lack of concern for other disciples here is a reason for strong warning. Jesus uses this this very graphic image in verse 6. If the choice is between, on one hand, leading or causing another Christian to sin, and on the other hand, a quick drowning in the depth of the sea, 
it would be better to choose the quick drowning. The millstone he refers to that he should be tied around the neck is a, no surprise, stone used in a mill to crush grain. It's a great wheel pulled by an animal that rotated on a rock below it. We're talking about a rock that weighed at least 1,500 pounds, if not more. Sometimes we use similar language for rhetorical effect. Asked to do something we don't like, we jest, I'd rather be hit by a bus. Jesus is going to use similar strong language in in verses 8 and 9 to talk about removing our temptations to sin. But he doesn't mean any of this literally. But he isn't exaggerating in the way that, that we might. He really is here pronouncing woe, even greater sorrow and distress, even greater than drowning judgment on those that cause temptation to come. In verse 7, woe he says, to the world. He recognizes there that temptations must come. By that, he just means that that in our fallen world, temptations will continue. God has ordained, as long as this world continues, that in his wisdom, temptations will accomplish his plan and, and perfect his people. But for those through whom those temptations come, drowning at sea would be preferable to the judgment that is to come. Woe to that one, he says, to whom judgment comes, or temptations come. And and to be clear, I think Jesus is addressing more than his disciples. He uses whoever throughout here, and in particular, the world in verse 7. This is a, a universal warning for all who hear. Your words and actions have a a direct effect on others. You can, by what you say and what you do, either help people to trust and obey God, or by your influence lead them to doubt and disobey God. Certainly each man is responsible for himself before God, but you will give an account for the role that you played in their life. Jesus is here teaching us to warn us. Jockeying for position is not just pride, but damaging to others. He is reminding us of this to give us added incentive to fight sin in our own lives. So let me remind you, saints, you have a responsibility and a privilege to live in such a way that is not only honoring to God, but helpful to others. You have before you this morning an opportunity to take account now before you must with God. In the way that you live, in the way that you speak, are you showing concern for the good of others? Is your conduct a help or a hindrance to others trusting and obeying God? You might be thinking, well, I'm I'm pretty neutral not hot or cold. But since it is every sinner's natural tendency to doubt and disobey, we all need your positive and active help to trust and obey. If you're not helping, you're hindering. You have reason, brothers and sisters, to deal with your own sin because you will give an account for how you are influenced on others. 
what to do about our own sin, Jesus teaches us here, repent and recognize risk. And our third sub-point, remove. What to do about our own sin, remove. In verses 8 and 9, Still, in answer to their question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and what it exposes about the pride in their hearts, Jesus warns them to radically remove temptations to sin. So if what we just studied in verses 5 through 7 were warnings about temptations to sin that come through others, this in verses 8 and 9 is about temptations to sin that come from within, from our own selves, things like our hands and our, our eyes. The world and the flesh cause us to be tempted to sin. You see here in verse 8, he says that it's better to lose a hand or a foot than with two hands or feet be thrown into eternal fire. And he repeats it. He says the same in in verse 9, but but now about eyes, better to lose an eye than with two eyes be cast into hell. He has in mind the things that we, we handle Keyboards, remotes, our fists, what we walk to with our feet, refrigerators, office coolers, what we see, images, trinkets, possessions. None of these things is sin in themselves, but they can be causes of temptation. Temptation to laziness and lust, violence, gluttony, gossip, and discontent. We know he means that this cutting and tearing is rhetorical because we don't see the early church filled with blinded amputees. He is rather calling us to radical action to fight temptation. Similar to what Paul will call us on, call on us in, in Romans 13, 14. He calls on us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The flesh, the the sinful nature of Christians is still a source of temptation to sin as long as we live in this fallen world. But its persistence is not an excuse to retire. We are to metaphorically cut off and tear out those sources of temptation from our lives. You have reason to be as extreme as if you were removing a body part. And it might be just as painful. You want to make it hard for you to do the wrong thing. Just as it's hard to see without an eye. Make it hard to even think about sin. This prescription, of course, looks different for every person, depending on what causes you to be tempted to sin. So this is a an encouragement for you to study your temptations and be diligent in cutting them off at their source. To consider, when are you tempted to sin? What time of the day? Is it when you're tired or hungry? What is it that you're feeling when you're tempted to sin? What is it that people have been doing to you or that you have been doing? What have you been wanting or hoping in In those moments when you're tempted to sin, to doubt God and desire other things. What do those temptations offer you that sound so appealing? What does God's word say 
about those lies. Brothers and sisters, no one can do this work for you except you. We must be diligent in studying our temptations and in putting them to death. But there is a role to play in helping others. A regular feature of Christian relationships should be accountability. So as you study your temptations, it should be natural and easy for us to share those with others and to seek help and support from others in cutting those things out of our lives. The alternative is to take the easy path right into the temptation and by gratifying the desires of the flesh to be, Jesus says, thrown into eternal fire. Jesus in these verses is calling us to something painful, but it is temporary pain with the promise of life rather than the, the fleeting pleasures with the prospect of eternal torment. Isn't that an easy choice? Temporary pain for eternal pleasure. Why is it then that so many make a wretched choice? It is because we are born with a nature that loves sin. We are enslaved to it. Again, it requires the miracle of conversion. A, a true distaste for sin only comes from above. We need a new nature born again as children of God. Sin, he says here clearly, deserves eternal fire. It deserves hell. No one taught this more clearly than Jesus that, that in the end, commitment to sin over God will end in his just wrath poured out forever in hell. That is because God is good, friends. True goodness revolts with indignant anger against evil. And God is so good, so pure, that he cannot even look at the evil of our sin. A God who does any less would be a terrible God. But a God who leaves us all to hell would also be a terrible God. It is the glory of our triune God that, that though all people deserve hell, all people are offered heaven by grace. The, the wonder of the Bible is not that some will go to hell, but that any can go to heaven. No one deserves to enter the kingdom of heaven on their own. No one by themselves is humble like a child. No one can stand in God's presence by their own merits. You know, if you started at Genesis 1 and read all the way to Matthew 18, you might be surprised that this chapter makes no mention of a sacrifice for sin. Before Jesus, the way normally to deal with sin always included sacrifice. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was given by God because people needed to make atonement for all the ways they had done evil. But this chapter makes no mention of that system. It will become quickly obsolete. Why? What is imminent at this point in Matthew 18? It is the ultimate 
sacrifice. It is the sacrifice that all the other sacrifices were pointing to. They were all pointing to Jesus. He is the sacrifice come from God to take away our sins. He will die on the cross as the the final and perfect substitute for sin. He will die on the cross absorbing God's good wrath against all the sin of those who will willingly trust in him. He on the cross suffered the torments of fire that we deserve so that in him we can receive the pleasures of life forever. His life lost so that in him we can gain life forever. And you too can can have this eternal life with the forgiveness of sins by turning and becoming like a little child in dependent trust and faith in him. Your death for his life. And the way we know it's real, that you have that new nature from above, well, you will be radical in removing sin from your life. What to do about your own sin? Repent, recognize risk, and remove. This kind of God-given sobriety will lead us to a new attitude in not only how we deal with our own sins, but also the sins of others. And that's where Jesus takes us next as he continues to answer who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So our second section, what to do about the sins of others. What to do about the sins of others. And first, rescue. That in verses 10 through 14. Those who repent, recognize risk, and remove will also work to rescue others who wander into sin. To do otherwise would be, in fact, to despise the ones we are called to love. Look again with me at verse 10. Jesus continues, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, little ones is not a reference to little children, though that certainly is also true. We are not to despise children. But he is specifically talking about Christians, disciples of Christ. And what does the rest of this verse mean? Well, some suggest the reason he gives is in reference to guardian angels. That each disciple has a specific angel assigned to guard them. Certainly angels are God's servants sent to minister to those who are to inherit salvation. But I do not think this verse, verse 10, is teaching about a guardian angel. First of all, what kind of guards would they be if they were always looking at their father's face instead of us? They should be focusing on us. But I think more likely verse 10 is is referring to the souls of departed Christians. It's unusual, but the Bible does sometimes refer to our souls as as angels. Matthew 22, 30 says that we are like angels in heaven. No, we do not become angels, but are like them, perfected with God in glory. I think verse 10 is giving us a reason not to despise, but radically pursue other Christians. For, I tell you, he says, all Christians, when they die, are ushered into the presence of God. Their destiny, all our destiny, for those who are in Christ, is glory. So rescue those in danger. 
He uses a parable to illustrate this, starting in verse 12. Quickly, if you're wondering where verse 11 is, it's the same situation that we discussed last week with the missing Matthew 17, 21. So if you weren't here last week and really want to know, come ask me about that later. But starting in verse 12, there's a, a parable that we should be like the shepherd who leaves the 99 to seek out the one who has been lost. And one found to rejoice over his rescue more than even the 99 who didn't go astray. What are we to do about the sins in others? Let them be. It's their own choice. Focus on the effort, our efforts on the ones that are right here in front of us. After all, numerically, 99 are far more important than one. No, Jesus teaches us here, it is the heart of the Father to go after the one. It is not just the group in total that is valuable, but each and every individual in it. There are a few practical implications of this. First, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we must know who is a part of the 100 to start with. He is giving here directions about how we are to care for little ones, other Christians. Certainly, this is not to say that we have no responsibility to rescue non-Christians, but that is the work of calling goats to become sheep. Here, he is talking about our pursuit of those who call themselves sheep, part of the flock. So we need to know the difference. That's part of the reason we practice church membership, to know who the sheep are and what sheep we are committed to pursuing. Frankly, there are churches just down the road from us filled with other sheep. Again, you have responsibility to care for them as well. But as a member of this church, you have a particular responsibility and commitment expressed in our church covenant to care for these 68 sheep of Stafford Baptist. Our covenant puts it this way. We engage, or covenant, to watch over one another in brotherly love. Every member promises, based on passages like Matthew 18, 10 through 14, to be as shepherds to one another in this church. You'll notice this passage gives no particular direction to pastors. No, this is the responsibility of every Christian. So that's the first implication. But, but there's a second. We have to also know who among our 68 is wandering. Not all wandering is physical separation, like he describes here in the parable, but it might be. Persistence, absence from our gathering may indicate spiritual apathy or worse. Or maybe the wandering sheep is sitting right there next to you whose heart is spiritually wandering, tempted even this morning to doubt God and disobey His Word. Hear it again, verse 14. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Brothers and sisters, to have a heart like our Father means that we are to take spiritual interest in the lives of the saints around you. To pursue them right here in the pew with, with interest in their spiritual good and 
It calls on us to give ourselves to their care. So I'd suggest try today asking someone how they're really doing. And by that, I don't assume that that any of us mean to deceive when asked how we're doing, but that it's hard to be vulnerable, to tell how we're really doing. But a community that has this kind of heart, a heart like our Father, will be a a flock guarded from the the wolves and ravines that, that threaten lone sheep. And it requires each one of us to be both sheep and shepherd. First, what are we to do about the sins of others with the heart of our Father rescue? Jesus goes on, though, to give us step-by-step directions for how we are to deal with the sins of others in our community. Those with the heart to rescue will aim to see our brother or sister restored. So our second sub-point What to do about the sins of others? Second, restore. Second, restore. We see this in verses 15 through 17a. Jesus here gets very practical. What do we do in the very real scenario when another member of our church sins against us? It's encouraging that Jesus expects this to happen. No, the church is not a club for the perfect, but a hospital For the hurting, we will continue to sin and against even those we love in the church. What does love require us to do in those scenarios? Well, sometimes it means dropping it. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. When we love one another, Peter means that sometimes covering means forbearing. Not letting the offense come between you and I. But sometimes, according to the direction of Jesus here in Matthew 18, that's not the way of wisdom. Sometimes it means what Jesus says here in verse 15. Go and talk to them. In love, with humility and patience, tell them their sin. You know, I could have called this second subpoint rebuke or even reprove and been faithful to what Jesus teaches here and kept even with the alliteration. Love sometimes rebukes, correcting other Christians in their sin. This should be a normal occurrence in our life together. Loving confrontation when we sin against one another. But I didn't choose the word rebuke or reprove, I chose the word restore, because rebuke and reprove is only the means. The goal here is to restore. We go and talk to one another about the sin, not to demean them or shame them, but to restore them. Jesus says here, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The goal is to gain them. To gain implies that every brother or sister is a treasure and that repentance from their sin is is for their good. The goal of our communal life is to help one another stay right where we started. The first point today, to maintain repentance from sin, to live a life that is consistent with our new birth, from our turning to become like children. But Jesus continues to be very practical here. He knows that sometimes in our sin, 
we will not listen. Sometimes we will be slow to repent. So leaving the timeline open, he, he says the next step is to elicit help. If verse 15 is the first step, private, verse 16 is step two, partner. He says that we are to take along one or two witnesses. Their role is not to witness to the initial sin. We don't know if they were there. But to witness to the, to the erring brother that he is indeed not listening, refusing to repent. Again, the goal is always to see them restored to repentance. Sometimes in our sin, we need a plurality of counselors to lead us to see our sin and see the path to repentance. These one or two witnesses should be mature Christians, the kind of people who will not stir up division, who will not gossip, who are held in, in high regard. I wish we had some kind of statistical data to back this up, but, but let me imagine if a hundred sins are committed among us, 99 should be dealt by that first step or even before it. It should be normal for us as Christians to freely confess and repent of our sin or quickly repent when confronted, confronted by others. But sometimes we pray in very rare circumstances, in one out of a hundred, even then we will not repent. But because repentance is a matter of life and death, Jesus instructs us here not to give up. For that one in a hundred, take a long help. And God forbid that doesn't work. There is a third step. Look with me again at verse 17. If he, that is your brother who sins against you, doesn't listen to the witnesses, the one or two witnesses, he says, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. The principle thus far in Jesus' very particular directions has been to keep the offense as private as possible. But the ultimate goal is restoration, not privacy. Repentance is more important than even reputations. As long as privacy can be guarded, it should. But that's not the goal. Let me say it again. The ultimate goal is restoration, not privacy. Repentance is more important than even reputations. So, in the third step, the offense is brought before the church, from private to partner to now public. You can see in the second half of verse 17 that now the whole church is brought in to call the offender to repentance. That's what's assumed when he says, listen to the church. The church must be saying something to the offender. And what might the church be saying? Well, it's a call to repentance. Repent. We love you. It is better to, to lose a hand, a, a foot, or eye. So cut it off, brother, sister. Tear it away. Repent and be saved. So members of Stafford Baptist, when... Not if, when you feel that you have been sinned against by someone at this church, consider, can love cover a multitude of sins? 
Can you so love that brother that that won't come between you and them? If not, go and talk to them. Don't start by telling other people about the sin. If love cannot cover it, don't let it smolder into bitterness. Address it. Be patient. We all know that it is hard to be confronted in our sin, to be found out. Pray. Be kind in the meantime. Then address it again. If the offending brother continues in obstinance, God has appointed a means to help bring his children to repentance. Other brothers and sisters, just a few at first, but as many as are necessary in the end. By God's grace, our church has done a wonderful job in years past carefully thinking about how to do this well. There are pages and pages of our church bylaws pages 12 through 15, that carefully direct our church in this process. I encourage you to to read them. But unfortunately, that's not the last step. Our desire for restoration is not always possible. Our final sub-point, the last way that we are to deal with the sins of others, according to Jesus' instructions here in Matthew 18, remove. What to do about the sins of others, remove. That in 17b through 20. You'll notice that this is conveniently the same as the first sub, third subpoint in our first section. Just like we are called to remove our body parts that cause us to sin, so does Jesus call on us to remove the parts of his body that continue in sin without repentance. That's what he means there in verse 18 when the offending brother when he refuses to listen, would be to us as a Gentile and tax collector. He's using figurative language. They don't literally come from being a Jew to Gentile or from some other profession to a tax collector. No, he's calling us to treat them as one outside the community of God, proverbial for sinner. They are still to be objects of our love, as all sinners are, still receive the call to repent, as we offer to all sinners, but they are no longer to be considered part of the flock. Though they might confess Jesus with their lips, their refusal to turn away from sin shows that they have not turned and become like a child in that first great step, how to enter the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, the church does not have the power or the perception to say that decisively they are or are not saved, only that their refusal to repent is inconsistent with true life in Christ. It is counter to all that Jesus teaches here in Matthew 18, that we are to beware the dangers of sin, that we are to repent, to recognize its risk, its influence on others, and to remove it radically. To do otherwise is to align ourselves more with the world those outside the flock, than with Christ. We see that this is how the early church dealt with tolerated sin in the body. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul directs the Corinthian church to remove the member who is in unrepentant sin. Jesus goes on in verses 18 through 20 to back up their authority as the church to do exactly that, to remove the brother. He says in verse 18, 
that whatever you bind, or sorry, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. This is the same language that he used in, in chapter 16, 19. If you recall, there he gave to his disciples the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose the membership of the church. So here again, the church, the whole church, not just a part of it, have the authority to bind and loose, to add and remove true or false confessors from the body. But it requires in verse 19 that you agree. If two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Well, does this mean that it only takes two members to remove someone? No. His point is it takes at least two. It takes two agreeing. It is not the act of one unilaterally. It takes the judgment of not just one acting alone. It requires consensus among the body to agree. We have heaven's authority to do so. The final verse, verse 20, has been used wonderfully, though out of context, to say that Jesus is present with the gathered church. That is certainly true, but not the point here. Notice it's connected with a for or because to what came before it. We can act with this authority, heaven's authority, because Jesus is among us. Together, we have an authority that we cannot exercise apart. You, in other words, cannot get together with a few other Christian friends and decide these kinds of things. It requires the gathering, the assembly of the church. Verse 20, gathered in my name, he says. If you need help understanding this, sometimes it is helpful to turn to other passages to understand the one we're in, the one in front of us. It's wise for us to turn to 1 Corinthians 5. It is the most clear, like I said, example of the church doing exactly what Jesus instructs us. And Paul puts these very verses in his own words, in his instructions to the church there. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You hear it there. Speaking of this removal, delivery over to the kingdom of Satan, the world, only happens when he says, you are assembled in the name of the Lord, gathered with the power, he says, the presence of Jesus with us, an authority to do a power together what we cannot do apart. And the goal in 1 Corinthians 5 as well is that he would be saved so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, restored to repentance. Jesus, in his wisdom, has given this process to the church together. We are to beware the dangers of sin together for our common good. Those who repent and recognize their sin, who remove it from their own lives, will in turn rescue, restore, and remove in love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, with warnings such as these, it is absolutely clear that sin is dangerous. We are not to treat sin in a cavalier fashion. Sin always hides its price tag. It is serious. 
and presents serious danger to ourselves and others. And this danger is not ultimately in this world. The greatest threat is in the world to come, an eternal destiny of life or fire. So church, this morning, beware the dangers of sin first in your own life. Continue to turn away from sin, even now, this morning, despising it for what it is and looking to follow Jesus in obedience. Refuse to believe the lie that sin is harmless and take radical action to remove temptations from your life. I can assure you, you will not lose anything of value and only gain what is truly good. And as you care for your own soul, beware the danger of sin in others. Pursue those wandering after the fleeting pleasures that will destroy them. In love, seek to gain them back, even when it means, means removing them from the body of the church that in the last day their souls might be saved. Beware the dangers of sin in yourself and others. Let's pray.